0: Right. I'm going to give myself 50 minutes. Is that right? Do I have 50 minutes or an hour? Oh, nice. <laughs> That's funny. Let's see if that stays on. Okay. So uh, this is sufficiency of Scripture, right? Is that what we're on? Hey, we're going to wake you guys up. Is it, is it lunch that got you? Or do we need to somebody run down to get Diet Cokes or something to pass out? That's great. Okay, so how many people do we have here? Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So Terry told me 25. Uh, okay, okay. Thought maybe he was seeing double. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is... Um, hang on just a second. So this is a sufficiency of scripture. This doctrine is critical for uh, biblical counseling. And it's critical for biblical counseling in a, in a variety of ways. Um, but before I dive into that, I want to ask you uh, a question just very general. I want to know from three of you the most significant thing you've learned so far since you've been in this class i don't mean this class because you didn't learn anything here yet but uh last night and today so just very quickly because we don't have a lot of time what stood out to you like when you got to lunch or or break you you just came away with something ringing in your heart um what was it tell me one thing it got to be really brief come on come on come on have you learned anything Feel like you didn't learn anything. I know you had Terry and. Uh, I one, of, one of the things I learned was about um, the fact that God was always loving the son. Mm. I kind of, it, ma- it just, it, it kind of made me think like I, I just always was like assuming they just they had you know they were self sufficient glory uh, each was glorifying themselves. Yeah. The Father's love for the Son for eternity, yeah, yeah. It's rich, deep theology, isn't it, man? Uh, who who taught you that? What, what what? Do you remember the name of the remember? It may have been Terry, yeah. Who? Oh, Jason. He's my associate. Uh, he's don't tell him this, but he's the smartest young man I've ever known in my life. He's uh Yeah, he does. He does. And we always say, talk to me like I'm five. So, okay, somebody else. Two more people. Yeah, go ahead. Last night, Keith was in my meeting. Is that Keith Palmer? Yes. Okay. And I remember just thinking, why do I not spend so much of my time reading the Bible? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Keith would be happy to hear that, Um, yeah, the inerrancy of scripture, and you were saying, just for the recording, um, uh, you said it made you, if I understood right, uh, made you realize that you should be spending a lot of time in the Bible, just wanting to spend more time in the Bible after hearing that, that's good. Okay, one more. (laughs) <laughs> that's okay, that's okay. Somebody else, we need one more person to tell us what you learned. about, oh, was going to Oh, yeah. About, you know, like how God sees us as if, we would always say, I don't know, we focus on you, yourself. And um, that he can do that with each one of us. Yeah. To be such a big God who just spoke the universe. And yet he cares about you. Yeah, yeah. You know, just a, you know, how wonderful is that that the Lord knows us all by name and He cares for us as individuals. Um, a lot of the pronouns in uh, the pastoral epistles are, are plural, uh, so He's He's often referring to the church. Uh, nevertheless, His love for every individual is apparent all throughout Scripture. Um, so in the Bible, God has revealed everything we need for salvation and for godly living. There is no reason to look elsewhere. We don't have to look outside the Bible for anything uh, necessary <clears throat> for life and godliness. Well, I think we can all agree that one of the marks of a true Christian is that he or she loves the Bible and, uh, one of the thing, first things that happens to a person uh on on many occasions at least in my experience with people who come to know the lord is they 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 suddenly not only understand the bible but they suddenly want to read the bible they love the bible it's often true that the most drastic change that spontaneously occurs in a man or woman after he first embraces christ is that they suddenly find themselves reading the bible and asking questions about the Bible, and learning about the Bible. And from the time of your conversion, no doubt, to the end of your life, uh, you will live under the banner of, and here's the Latin phrase, sola scriptura, which means, anybody know? Scripture alone, that's right. Scripture alone is our authority. Everything we need comes from the Word of God. And so... um, We are convinced, when it comes to the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture, we are convinced that Scripture alone can create faith in the heart. Scripture alone is the means of knowing God. Now, think about this. If it were not for the Scriptures, we would know very little about God, and we would know nothing about Jesus. Uh, There are some things that we can deduce about God by looking into the heavens. That's what Psalm 19 tells us. Um, But in terms of Jesus, we wouldn't know anything. Scripture alone is the final authority over Christian faith and patience. And practice, I'm sorry, practice. And scripture alone provides all the truth necessary to build a life that pleases the Lord. You don't have to look anywhere else to discover that and the churches where the church where i serve we love the scriptures we love the scriptures in fact this church they love the word of god uh, there are five churches that provide most of the of the teachers here and all of us are pastors we all have this common bond we love to share the scriptures we love to read the scriptures we minister the scriptures to our, to one another and and to those outside our churches we love the Bible. In 1994, when God led my wife and I and, and a couple others to revitalize uh, Calvary Presbyterian Church Independent, uh, we officially changed the name to Calvary Bible Church. Because we wanted it, we wanted to, to have in our name an expression of what our, our highest value is. Um, and that's the Bible. We love the Bible. The reason we love Christ is because of what God has revealed to us about Him from the Bible. And so we wanted to be a church whose core and foundation is the Word of God. We were determined to be a church that encouraged all believers to embrace the centrality and the sufficiency of Scripture to the glory of God and their own stability and joy. But we never thought that we never thought for a minute that what we were doing was novel. We never thought that it was something new, something trendy, or something uh, that and, that no one else should be doing. Uh, the fact of the matter is, this is as ancient as the church is. Uh, we saw ourselves following the ancient directives that God had laid down in His Word. And there is perhaps nowhere in the Bible that lays out a stronger case for the sufficiency of Scripture than in Paul's second letter to Timothy. And in his second letter, if you have your Bible, you might uh, turn there. Um, if you have, I, I want to invite you to look at this, 2 uh, 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 Timothy 3:14 through 17. And our goal this afternoon is, is uh, to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, but not just the sufficiency of Scripture, but how the uh, sufficiency of Scripture speaks to the issue of biblical counseling. If we had time, we would. It would be appropriate for us to also speak about Scripture's authority. Uh, you may have already talked about that with another speaker. Um, the Authority of Scripture comes from the reality that it is breathed out by God. And what's the word for that? What's the theological term for breathed out by God? Inspiration, Inspiration, right? So it was inspired by God. And so because it is inspired by God, the Word of God is the authority. Second, if we had time, we could talk about the fact that the Scriptures are efficacious. There's another big term, this is the word, of, the word of God. Hang on just a second. Something happened to my microphone here. So efficacious means that all the words of God are living and active. They are given to accomplish things in the world and, and things in our lives, and they never return to God void. When someone preaches the Word faithfully it will bear fruit. We don't know what fruit it will bear, but we know that God's word is always doing things in the lives of his people. They are powerful to accomplish God's purposes. And hence, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 16, that the scriptures are uniquely profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The implication here is that if we're going to be effective as disciple makers, we need to engage in all four of these disciplines as as they are needed. And as we do, we can have confidence that by the ministry of the Word of God, a, a man of God may be adequate, equipped for, what's the next word? Every, every good work. The Word of God is sufficient to equip us for every good work. And so we believe in the the efficaciousness or the efficacy of Scripture. And what a marvelous gift to the church this is from God. It is everything that we need. And yet there's more. The Scriptures are authoritative, they are efficacious, and they are, third word here, is sufficient. As biblical counselors, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, since there's not a lot of words in the text here that we're looking at, let me catch us up here a little bit. We're going to look at some definitions, but um, I want to offer you some hooks to hang our thoughts on uh, this afternoon. Um, I want us to talk about a few things, three things in particular: the definition of sufficiency the biblical grounds of sufficiency and some applications of sufficiency. And I think when you're done with this, um, when we're done this lecture, I think you'll, you'll probably have some more questions, but I think you'll have some wonderful answers that will get fleshed out over the next three months as we talk about these things in very practical terms. What we're trying to do with you Uh, in these conferences is to teach you not just theology, but what we call practical theology. This is taking the theology, the rich, deep theology of the Word of God, and bring it to bear on people's lives. And this is why a lot of us got into ministry in the first place. We wanted to help people. We wanted to help people come to know Christ. But there was a disconnect in the seminaries between the theology that we get from the Word of God, and actually how to bring that to bear upon people's lives. Nobody was teaching it, which is what Jay Adams kind of rediscovered back in the 1960s. And if you haven't read his book, Competent to Counsel, I would encourage you to start there. uh, Because you really need to see, and and I'm kind of on a, uh, a, a mission about this, uh, so many people who are starting out, they're, they're novel, novice big biblical counselors, and they start off with the new books. And I would say, reading the new books is great. But why don't you start at the beginning? Why don't you start with competent to counsel to help you understand why this movement began to happen, and how it came about, and what were the battles that were being fought back in the 1960s and 70s. And, uh, really, Jay Adams uh, was like the Martin Luther of that generation. He basically, all the churches had, had adopted psychology, uh, all of them. I mean, at least guys my age, we all know that. Uh, growing up, I mean, nobody, if, if, they, if you had a problem that was outside of uh, uh, sharing the gospel and receiving the gospel and repenting of sin, but if you had difficult problems, Uh, You went to the psychiatrist down the road, and and Jay Adams stood up and said, the whole church is wrong. This is not the way we should be doing things. We say that we believe the Bible, and yet we don't use the Bible for the most important things in life. And so this is what the sufficiency, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture speaks to. So when theologians speak of this... The sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, what they mean is this. Scripture contains all the divine words necessary for any aspect of human life. Scripture contains all the divine words necessary for any aspect of the, of, of human life. Now, what does this mean exactly? Well, when we say that the Scripture is sufficient, uh, this is what John... John Frame tells us in his excellent uh, Systematic Theology. He says this, Scripture contains divine words sufficient for all of life. It has all the divine words for that the plumber needs and all the divine words that the theologian needs. Now, that may sound a little odd. Uh, what do plumbers have to do with this? Or you could put in anything, a- any airline pilot, any any pastor, any homemaker, any... The Word of God is sufficient for all of that. And it, I know this may sound a little bit odd here at the beginning, but this definition doesn't suggest that the Word of God contains some some kind of technical manual for plumbers. It doesn't. It doesn't tell a, uh, a, a plumber how to turn pipes. Um... It doesn't tell him how to become a master of his craft. Rather, it means, and listen carefully, that the plumber has in the Bible all of God's words that are necessary for him to be a plumber for the glory of God or to be an airline pilot for the glory of God or be a high school student for the glory of God, just as, the, as it is with the theologian or the pastor. We find in the Bible all of God's words necessary for us to be uh, spiritually shepherded in whatever place we find ourselves to the glory of God. And so the Bible tells us God, God it tells God's people everything necessary to be reconciled to God and everything, everything necessary to live to the glory of God. In the 1600s, there's a group of pastors in Westminster, in, that's in Britain, in, London, in England, and uh, they wrestled with formulating a brief explanation of the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. And this is what they came up, came up with. Here it is, uh, Westminster Confession. It says this The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. I think this is a great explanation of what or definition of what this efficiency is. And all of that is to say everything God wants us to know about salvation and life as a follower of Christ can be found in the Bible. That's what we mean when we say that the scriptures are sufficient. Uh, secondly, the biblical grounds for sufficiency. This is 2 Timothy 3.16, and probably all of you have uh, memorized this. If you were in a Nawanas club or any kind of scripture memory program when you were young, you no doubt learned this passage of scripture, and here's how it goes. All scripture is inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, a note here on the word profitable. Um, The word uh, profitable is important. Uh, We we talked a minute ago about being God-breathed, which is the word inspired, Um, but that's a a different lecture. We don't want to get into that today. But all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. The word profitable here means that the scriptures are beneficial. They are useful. Paul is telling us that the scriptures should be used whenever we attempt to teach or reprove or correct or train people in righteous living. Uh, This has profound implication for us, because you know what? Most of the counseling that goes on, in fact, most of what would be called Christian counseling that goes on, uh, especially if you are licensed by the state, here's what happens. Um, The state says you can be a Christian and counsel. You just can't uh, minister the gospel. You can't try to convert someone. You can't talk really about Jesus, except in, this, in the sense that you can talk about your own experience and your own love for him, but you can't exhort someone <clears throat> to love Jesus. And the problem with that is, Jesus commands you to talk about Jesus. Jesus commands you to use his word. <clears throat> and so there's an awful lot of counseling that would be labeled Christian that is blatantly contrary to what biblical counseling is all about. So Paul's telling us that the scriptures should be used whenever we attempt to teach or reprove or do anything else uh, relative to uh, our good and God's glory. Um, The Bible, number three, is the believer the believer's comprehensive source. It's the believer's comprehensive source of truth. Notice that all four of these words, and here they are again, teaching, reproving, correcting, and and, and training in righteousness. All four of these words refer mostly to a verbal ministry. Teaching is a verbal activity. Reproving is largely a verbal activity. It's done by verbal encounter. Correcting usually takes place through the means of words. And while it involves modeling, it will surely also necessitate verbal instruction. You're going to have to speak. Therefore, the Apostle Paul says, in your verbal ministry, or in your discipleship conversations, or your teaching, or your preaching, or your counseling, the word of God should be used. The word of God should be used, and you might be thinking right now, "Well, duh! I mean, this is this is biblical counseling. Uh, don't we all agree on that?" Well, we probably, probably everybody in this room agrees with that. I suspect you probably knew that we would say things like this before you came, but you just need to understand that not everyone who claims to be a Christian counselor, or even a biblical counselor. Uh, In practice, they just don't see it this way. There are other things that should be brought in and that are necessary. And there are specific texts in the Bible that, that should be read, explained, and applied when you're counseling. And by the way, that's, I, don't, I don't know what your view of counseling is. You may not even know what your view of counseling is, but you probably have one. We've all been psychologized to some level, and we have thoughts about what it should look like. The main feature of biblical counseling is teaching the Bible. It's teaching the Bible. If, if you're counseling and you're not bringing the Word of God to bear, you're not doing biblical counseling. It's in the name. Biblical. Biblical Counseling. But don't misunderstand, Paul's not suggesting that the Bible is one of many good options. The ministry of God's word is exclusive. It is the only source of truth that is breathed out by God. What number are we on? There is six. So, Paul tells us that... By the scriptures, verse 17 says, the man of God is made complete. The man of God is made equipped for every good work. Now let's look at these words. The term complete and equipped together form a combination of an adjective and a a perfect passive participle, if that means anything to you. And it may be best translated as thoroughly equipped, not just equipped, but thoroughly equipped or able to meet the demands. The word means that that whatever the word of God is and whatever it is you're facing in your ministry of the word of God, it is able to meet, to meet those demands. I have yet to find a case where um, the person's problem was so unique that the word of God just didn't apply. Now, I have run into issues where it took a lot of thought to figure out How it reached, I mean, how it was grounded in uh, how the Word of God speaks to it. But here's the thing. There's only so many ways to sin, right? Uh, There's a lot of repetition in the Bible. The the Bible is, what, a couple thousand pages long. Um, But you know what? There's a lot of repetition there. It's talking about the same things in different ways. It's giving different nuance. It's It's like taking a diamond and holding it up, and yeah, you see the diamond, but if you turn it... You're going to see a lot of different facets of the diamond, but it's all the same diamond. And, and that's the way it is with the Bible. Um, there have been some cases where people come in and they tell me what they're struggling with, and I've never heard of that before. But I start asking questions and digging in, and then suddenly realize, oh, this is uh, rooted in a very common... It, it may be that uh, the manifestation of this sin is unique, uh, but the root of the sin is not. And when you're trying to address a person's problems, you want to get to that root, because if you can kill the root, you can kill the fruit. So note also that these terms have a comprehensive complexion about them. Paul wants Timothy to know that the core of his ministry is to teach and reprove and correct and train people using God's all-sufficient word, every command, every promise, every doctrine, every warning, every word of wisdom, and all the, tru- uh, all the truth necessary to equip the saints for the work of ministry to address their personal problems, whether they be relational problems, or whether uh, it is, it, it's their marriage problem, a soul problem, such as depression, or eating disorders, or panic, or various addictions all of them are adequately sufficiently spoken of in the bible so number 3 in the scripture in the scriptures we find everything we need to effectively equip the saints for ministry to address their personal problems to hold them accountable for sin To show them how to worship in spirit and in truth, to perform every other good work that would be pleasing to God. Whatever God wants you to do, the root of it is in the Bible. However God wants you to change, the root of it is in the Bible. It's here. This is why we are biblical counselors. So let's talk about application. What does it mean? What does all of this mean for biblical counselors? Well, it means this, and you're going to find at least for me in counseling, I use this text a lot. Proverbs three, five, and six. Can anybody quote that? That's right. And you, you know what? And a lot of times, a lot of times when I'm counseling, I will tell people, you are leaning on your own understanding. You've got this all figured out. Uh, you've come up with a plan. Uh, you may not be able to ver- verbalize it very clearly, but you're obviously moving in a certain direction, and you can't find any of this in the Bible. You are leaning on your own understanding. And clearly what this proverb teaches is, uh, that's foolish. Uh, you know, this is, this is like Walt Disney theology, right? Follow your heart. Uh, that's the most dangerous thing in the world that you could do. Uh, your heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Don't follow your heart. Follow the counsel of the Lord. Uh, consult God's Word. Obey the Scriptures. Minister His Word. Meditate on the Bible. Other resources may be helpful, but no other material is necessary. If it were necessary, it would, it would be in the Bible. So, here's another text for us to look at. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, uh, be a living model of what it looks like to live by the scriptures. Uh, Let me just give you a practical example of this. Uh, My wife and I are are about to celebrate uh, 35 years of marriage. And uh, uh, it's funny, though, when uh, when all seven of our kids were at home, you know, people would come into our house to bring in furniture or whatever, and they would count the, the children, and they'd say, you have seven children? And I said, yes. And they say, one wife? <laughs> yes, one wife, one wife. And you've been married for how long? Uh, you know, it's going to be 35 years. And I've had people say, I've never known anyone. Who stayed married that long? It's usually younger people who say that, but um, but it's rare. So how is it that a man and a sinful man and woman can stay married, mostly happily married, for thirty-five years? And the answer is, it's not that they didn't have any impulse to do otherwise. It's that they're committed to not leaning on their own understanding. And you know what? Now we're now that we're on the other side of the hard years of raising the kids and, and fighting the battles. Uh, you know what? It's sweeter than it was <laughs> it was ever before. Sweeter than ever before. And um, and who knew? Well, God knew. And if we would just do what He says and follow Him and lean not on, on our own understanding, um, then He would bless. So, being a living model of what it looks like to live under the authority of the Scriptures is one of the ways that you image forth the glory of God in this world. Do you realize that God created you to show the world what God is like? That's what the image of God is all about. God created you with his image in order that we would image forth the glory of God. So that, I mean, you think about this. If you've ever been to Egypt, and I haven't, but I've, I've seen the pictures, right? We've all seen them. And so Pharaoh uh, had a massive realm. He wanted everybody to know who the king was, who the Pharaoh was. And so what did he do? He had all these statues made all over. Even the the Sphinx, I mean, had his face on it. And they put his face on everything. Why? Because to the, to the furthest reach of the realm, he needed everyone to know who the king is. So he created images. Uh, today, uh, Terry Enns and I, you, you heard us last night talking about travel. Uh, we've been to, uh, Irkutsk, Siberia twice. And in that town, they still have one of the, um, one of the old bronze statues, huge, uh, larger than life bronze statue of Lenin, uh, in the square, of in downtown. And Lenin is standing there. And he's pointing to the university because that's, that's the working man's salvation, right? And, uh, why is there a statue there? there used to be statues everywhere, right? Because Lenin wanted you to know who was in charge, who the leader is. And this is what God had in mind, uh, when he created us in his image. The world is to be covered with the glory of God as The water covers the sea. And and that means you raise children who love Jesus and multiply them and and create churches and draw people to Christ. Um, And as you do, you are imaging forth what God is like. Three things. It, It images forth what God is like, what Christ is like, and what the gospel is like. When people when people hear folks uh, confessing sin to one another and f- granting forgiveness, uh, you don't get to hear that very often. But when you do, it's powerful. It's powerful. Where did that come from? How did you learn to do that? You know, does that really work? You see, yeah, that's how I've been married for 35 years because we ask each other forgiveness all the time. I I did that with my wife yesterday. Why? Because we're not leaning on our own understanding. It, you know, the last thing I need is more more of me, more of my wisdom. And so let the Word of God be the the, sen- the center of your marriage, your parenting, the way you relate to your co-workers, your neighbors, your enemies, and your friends. Let all of your life in ministry, ministry be ruled by the Word of God. Why? Well, because the Scriptures alone are sufficient to inform and train you to do everything God wants you to do in a manner that pleases Him. And by the way, these are these are not the only verses in the Bible that point to the sufficiency of Scripture. There are others, but let me say this: just to in, insert it here uh, on a discussion about um, following God's uh, God's truth and living God's truth. Um, we often say in our church, uh, "You don't know you don't know how to be married." until God teaches you. You don't know how to parent until God teaches you. Um, you don't know how to go to church and what to do in the church and God te- unless God teaches you. You don't know how to dress until God teaches you. Uh, you don't know how to learn until God teaches you. You don't know how to, to live with a cranky neighbor until God teaches you. You don't know how to discipline your children or be a faithful coworker. Until God teaches you. But God teaches you all of that. All of it. Uh, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And then there's Second Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And here's how it reads. Uh, why don't we have somebody, one of you read it? Who will volunteer? 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I Go ahead. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that was great. You're a good reader. What's your name? Josiah. Josiah. That's a great name, too. So, uh, wise for salvation... This is such an important text. Wise for salvation. Here Paul uh, says that the scriptures make one wise unto salvation. It helps you, it, it brings you to a point of um, understanding the gospel. That's why I said at the beginning, and, and maybe it's a new phrase for you, and, and maybe not, but the word of God has the power to create faith in you. And think about Romans Chapter uh, 1, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, the word of God, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God unto salvation. So the words of the Bible, the truth of the gospel, creates faith in the human heart as it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, God God always uses His Word. So, why is unto salvation? Salvation is an immense and magnificent work of Christ that only begins the moment you believe. When we think of salvation, we tend to think merely of the, the specific work of regeneration. Like when a person repents in that moment and believes a moment of regeneration where the Holy Spirit accomplishes by God's grace through faith, we think of it as as a singular moment in time when we were born again to a living hope, as Peter describes it. But Christ redeems us, not only from the wrath of God, but from the pernicious problems that we face in the world. He makes us... More and more, like, like we will be when we are in heaven. This is progressive sanctification. God is changing us. He's conforming us more and more to the image of His Son, so that we become more of an exact likeness so that we can show the world and the heavenly beings what the world is, what, what uh, Jesus is like, what God is like. Let me give you some examples. Uh, will there be unreconciled relationships in heaven? Answer? Here they are. Nope, they're not on the PowerPoint. Uh, will there be unreconciled relationships in heaven? You know, uh, I think if we knew, if, if everyone in your church who had an unreconciled relationship had a little spot, spot on their head that kind of blinked green... So everybody could see it. I think we'd be shocked at how many people have unreconciled relationships. Even in their homes. And even in the church. Um, Another example. Will children rebel against their parents in heaven? Josiah? (laughs) No. Uh, that'll, That'll never happen in heaven. Will there be depression in heaven? There'll be no depression in heaven, not a chance. Will there be eating disorders in heaven? Nope. Uh, there'll be lots of food, uh, but no gluttony and uh, no eating disorders. Uh, will there be um, Will there be a church splits or panic attacks or enslavement to be- besetting sins? No. Listen, that's what sanctification is about. You're moving toward, you're growing into what we will one day be when we get to heaven. And so there is an already and a not yet. Already we are changing. Already we are becoming more like Christ because of the ministry of the Spirit and the Word. And then one day, that process will suddenly be completed. I think that's what Paul was was referring to when in Philippians, uh, what is it? Philippians one six. Um, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until when the day of Christ Jesus, the day of Jesus Christ. Um, you know what a what a gift, what a promise that be that is. What about uh, dissociative identity uh, disorder? <laughs> Or any of these other things, none of them will be in heaven. And this is what God is working in us now. You think about what is the problem that you tend to struggle with? Your heart problem. This uh, is—I'll give you a little uh, insight into my own heart. Uh, So the National ACBC conference is coming up, and they've asked me to to speak um, uh, to that. And they gave me a year's notice, right? And they gave me this massive thing they wanted me to, to talk about. And, uh, I tell you, I've never had panic attacks in my entire life until about two weeks ago when I woke up, uh, thinking about, they've got the wrong man. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's something that was going on in my heart. And it wasn't godly. It wasn't biblical. It was about fear of man. And, uh, and, and who knows what else? A, a, a number of other things. Not only just fear of man, but just fear a fear that you're going to mess up, which is connected with fear of man, or whatever it is. What is it in your heart that you struggle with? Is it depression? Is it bitterness towards someone? Their unresolved conflict or whatever it is? Listen, those things can be addressed. They can be addressed, successfully addressed. But the key is that you and the other person need to not lean on their own understanding but to go to the word of God and maybe bring a counselor in who can help you sort out who's responsible for what biblically so that you can resolve whatever the issue that is. And, and then in the end, it won't be you resolving it. It will be the spirit and the word. It'll be by God's grace that you change. And, and you know what? Let me just say something else uh, off the notes. And that is that you don't have to be all grown up to have these kinds of problems, right? Uh, you can be in high school, or you can be younger than that and uh, and have significant troubles in your heart that maybe no one else knows about. and yet the Word of God speaks to every one of those issues uh, and and what you will get to do as a biblical counselor is you 'll get to help people figure that out but here 's the thing you 've got to know the word, you've got to know the Bible. You gotta know more than John 316 and a few other scriptures. You're gonna find as you go through this training, and, and hopefully you'll go on to more training, like the National Conference or other things that we offer here and, and at our church in, in Fort Worth. Um, you're gonna find out that um, um, that the problems that that, uh, that the problems that you hear about here and the solutions that you find here are going to be solutions that you're going to bring to bear in your own heart. And you're going to find, uh, you young people are going to find, that your friends are going to have some pretty serious difficulties. And you're going to know what to do. I've seen it with my own kids and, and was shocked by it. I mean, we've been teaching them this, hoping they would use it, never really believing that they would. Uh, didn't realize we didn't believe they would until they did it, and we said, we can't believe that. You know, they actually put this in practice and help two other people reconcile or help, you know, with whatever it was. Um, Because they've learned these truths from the word of God. So you see, friends, uh, Jesus is committed to changing you. Jesus is committed to changing you. And he's wanting to change you right now. But sanctification will never happen apart from the scriptures. Uh, Scriptures impart, and here are the key words, the scriptures impart instruction, that's teaching. It gives, it makes us aware of our problems, that's reproof. When someone comes to you and identifies a sin, that's reproof. Scripture calls us to change, that's correction. And scripture conforms us to the image of Christ that's righteousness instruction reproof correction and righteousness and all of this comes from the Word of God so let's look at second Peter 1 2 through 4 that's our next key text for the sufficiency of scripture and here's what it uh, here's what it says somebody else read this time Yep, go ahead. What's your name? Carter. Carter. All right, Carter. Go ahead. Mmm, good. What a great text. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. And God has, notice what it says. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us, what's the next word? Everything, or all things pertaining to life and godliness. How many things? All things. It is sufficient. So, uh, the Word of God is sufficient. In the Scriptures, God has provided everything man needs for physical and spiritual life. Here, listen to this by Ed Buckley. He argues, if Peter is correct about this, then God has given us all the information we need to function successfully in this life. Every essential truth, every essential principle every essential technique for solving human problems has been delivered in God's Word. So Peter, Peter is not teaching us that Christians have access to everything there is to know about everything. That's not what this doctrine teaches. But rather that we have access to everything we need, everything necessary to live in a moment, in this very moment... That glorifies God. So the first uh, scripture you're probably going to have people memorize when they come in for counseling is Second Corinthians five nine. Can anybody quote that? Go ahead, somebody. You got to know this. You got to know it. You got to know it inside and out. Your your husband or your wife or your mom or your dad. At home or away. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. You've heard this 10,000 times. You should be able to quote this. We make it our aim to please him. That's right. So, we have it here's the NAS says, uh, we have as our ambition whether at home or away, that means whether I'm dead or alive, in heaven or on earth, uh, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. And and you're going to use that verse because you're going to be taught to use that verse here. Um, and this is usually the first scripture you'll give is as, as as a memory verse in biblical counseling because um, this is how we should live. In every area of our lives, we should ask ourselves, would this be pleasing to the Lord? You know, uh when you're when you're parenting and your kids are making a tough decision about what movie to watch or something like that. Uh you don't have a scripture that tells you thou shalt not watch um, what's a movie? What's the latest one? The the latest uh In, uh, Avengers movie or something, right? And, uh, you know, should I, should I go to that or not? Well, do you think it would be pleasing to the Lord? Uh, that's a great way to, to start some dialogue on, on whether or not that would be appropriate. Um, what should I wear? Uh, well, what, what would be most pleasing to the Lord? Would this be pleasing to the Lord? Um, it's a good text. Just to remind us again that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, uh, we should do it to the glory of God, and uh, which means we're going to have to be discriminating. I know that's a bad word in our culture, but you have to discriminate between things. You have to say, no, this this doesn't this doesn't m- meet the litmus test. Um, I don't think that's going to be pleasing to the Lord. Therefore, we won't do it. Or it, at least you might have to say. In my heart, I, I don't think I can be pleasing to the Lord and do what you propose. And, for example, uh, let me just say, with alcohol. Now, I, I get it. The scriptures say, uh, not don't drink wine, but don't drink wine in excess. Don't become drunk, right? And so people will use that and say, well, I have liberty then. And indeed you do. But not everybody has that same freedom. For whatever reason. And, uh, and so there are a lot of Christians who would say, listen, I don't, I don't condemn you for drinking wine. I I hope that you obey the admonition not to get drunk with it. Um, but for me, I don't think I can be pleasing to the Lord and do that. And so it's a good gray area kind of question. Will, do I, do I believe in my heart? Doing this or saying this or participating in this will be pleasing to the Lord. Um, and then that can be informed by the Word of God. So um, let's talk about. Uh, why doesn't this passage mention the scriptures? Okay, so here's this key passage that we're working on, and it's all about, we, we would argue, it's all about the sufficiency of scripture. And yet some who try to refute this will say, um, well, why doesn't, why doesn't this text uh, clearly mention the scriptures? And, and that's a good question. Um, how do Christians access his divine power and uh, through the word of God, how do Christians access the divine power for living? And Peter explains that it comes through the knowledge of Christ manifest in his precious and catch this, his precious and magnificent promises. And I think that's the answer to the question. Heath Lambert, does that name ring a bell? You guys know Heath Lambert? Not Not personally, yeah, but you know who he is. Right, He used to be the uh, international uh, director of ACBC. Uh, Heath Lambert explains, The word scripture is not used here, but no faithful Christian interpretation of Peter's words could conclude that a person has access to this knowledge of Jesus Christ and his promises apart from the scriptures. We wouldn't know any of the promises if it weren't for the scriptures. And so they come to us. These promises come to us through the Word of God. And they are the key these are the key texts. These these texts that we've gone over the, today are the key texts for the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, but let me let me take this a step further. You want me to put that up? Maybe not. Um, okay, number one here on applications of sufficiency. Christians do not need to lean on subjective impressions or someone who claims to have the gift of prophecy to discern God's will for their lives. Everything we need to know about discerning God's will is sufficiently revealed in the Bible. And if you're going to trust on uh, subjective, subjective impressions... I'm telling you, sooner or later, that's going to catch up with you. Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. So, uh, a lot of times, people, Christian people, will say, "Well, God, God told me," um, or "God impressed upon me," or "God," um, and and I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't actively move in our hearts. He does. He gives us desires. He, uh, You know, sometimes you find an impulse in your heart to stop and help someone in need. And I believe that comes from the Holy Spirit. But it's different from saying, God said to me. Um, and so sometimes it's not just... Uh, people will say things like, it's not that he spoke to me verbally. Well, how did he speak to you? Because I want to know where he speaks to you in his word. We don't need... We don't need a subjective impression or a direct revelation from God to know that we should stop if we can and help someone, right? Because the Word of God has already told us that. He has already spoken. He's already spoken. And His Spirit supports that. And sometimes the Spirit presses it on us, right? Um, but we got to be careful about making decisions based on those feelings, because it's it's very hard sometimes to discern was that God or was that was that lunch, you know, or was that just because I'm in a good mood? I drank coffee, I woke up and there's a lot of glucose in my system and you know God starts speaking to me and and uh, Jonathan Edwards once said uh, a man who is getting his instructions uh, from uh, personal revelation is incorrigible in all of his misconduct. Because listen, if God told you, so here's here's a classic illustration. Uh, so, sometimes a woman will come to your office, uh, to your counseling center, or whatever, and she'll say, uh, she'll say, God told me to leave my husband, and serious. I mean, th- serious is a heart attack. God told me because she's been cultivating this sense of of godness, uh, this this uh, sense of communion with God. That is so personal, it becomes unbiblical. Okay, so here's another one. Christians do not need to be unsure about how to please God with their lives. The doctrine of sufficiency gives us confidence that we will be able to find what God requires us to think or to do. Uh, Number three. When a believer asks is asked to counsel someone with a difficult concern, he or she can be sure that the Bible is comprehensively sufficient as a guide for the uh, discipline of counseling. The Bible is the comprehensively sufficient book for understanding those aspects of human nature and those processes of change that are essential for wise and effective counseling. I'll tell you one story. We had a lady in our church years ago who uh had m- what the world would call multiple personality disorder um, or dissociative identity and uh you know whenever you were talking to her on the phone uh, it was another voice, another name it really sounded like different people and long story short um one day I was talking to her she was doing some work in the hallway of our of our church building we were painting or something and and I went in and I said uh I called her by name and I said uh so how are you doing today? And she said, she said, oh, uh, uh, didn't I tell you the the other women left me? And how uh, do you turn that off? <laughs> the other women left me, and I said, I said, ah, you gotta tell me about that. And we were really good friends. And uh, she <laughs> said, oh, pastor, I'd be happy to tell you. She said, you know, uh, we multiples—they call them—they they talk about themselves being multiples—and that. They're turning into different people. They call it switching. And uh, she said, we multiples switch because of two primary things. One is, uh, we have been hurt so badly by someone or other people that we, we just couldn't bear it. We just didn't know what to do with it. And so we assigned it to another woman. And that becomes a personality. And then the other thing is... And sometimes in, in, a, in a disconnected kind of way, they respond to that eventually by hurting someone else. Uh, you've sinned against someone else in such egregious ways that you just, can't, you just can't stand it. And so you assign that to someone else. And, and you know, these can multiply, right? If your brain's working and, and can keep track of it all. Um, but I said, okay, so what made the difference? And she said, Church. I've been listening to you preach and I've got people who, you know, have been counseling me just, you know, uh, not counselors necessarily in our church, but uh, people who know the word and are ministering the word. And she said, one day it occurred to me when Jesus died on the cross, he bore all my sin. I didn't need that lady anymore. And when Jesus died on the cross, uh, he took all my pain. He took more pain than I could ever experience. And he took it with him into the grave. I don't need that woman anymore. And she said they, they just left. It was interesting. Just like any temptation you have, I asked her, you get victory over it, right? I asked her, uh, do you ever, are you ever tempted? And she said, yeah. I've developed this habit of switching. And sometimes when the pressure's really on, I get tempted to switch. And by God's grace, I haven't done that in a long time. You know what? This is a really complicated problem. And yet the solution is found in the word of God. And and you know what? They have to want it. If they don't want it, it's it's not going to work. Uh, you may feel like you're going to go out and conquer the world with this like I did when I first learned the basics of biblical counseling and was shocked to find that people didn't want to hear what I had to say. Even in the counseling, room, they come for counseling, and then you give them the word of God and they run for their lives, you know, that's not what they thought they were going to get. So, um, I think we're out of time. Let me just give you some uh, caricatures about sufficiency. Uh, Sufficiency does not mean the Bible is exhaustive. It doesn't mean everything. It doesn't tell us everything about everything. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we would do them. Um, Secondly, sufficiency does not mean that the Bible reveals truth in modern-day terminology. Because when it was written, it wasn't modern-day. Or, or scientific categories. Uh, God uses His own words and creates His own categories. Thirdly, sufficiency does not mean that the Bible tells us everything that we might want to know. If a desired answer is not found in the Scriptures, we conclude that it was ultimately unnecessary not that scripture is inefficient. We don't need to know everything. We don't need to know if Pluto is a planet or a death star or oh, I don't know, but uh what is it out there? Is it a planet or is it a what do they call a dwarf planet? No. We don't need to know that. That's not essential for pleasing the Lord. Sufficiency does not mean that application of scripture requires no additional knowledge. Sometimes it does. Uh, live with your wife in an understanding way. Now, you have to know something uh, about that word. You have to know something. you, you, you got to use a lexicon or something that gives you insight on... Uh, so you, you need some additional information sometime to interpret the Bible, but a proper interpretation will give you the answers that you need. So in the Bible, God has revealed everything we need for salvation and godly living. There's no reason to look elsewhere. In other words, the scriptures are sufficient. Amen. Okay, you're a quiet group. Uh and that's wonderful. But uh next week I'm going to do s- next month. I'll have to find a way to get you up and moving or something. Um, I'm not sure I'm teaching this this course next time, but uh okay, any questions before we wrap up? Anything? Good cuz I'm ready to go to supper. All right. You're welcome. Why don't we pray and give thanks to the Lord for this. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together and this whole day. And we pray, Father, that the truths that we have learned would be uh, in our hearts and ready, Father, to be used to minister to one another and for your glory and for our own joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.